The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So we're going to continue our conversation around the encryption debate today, dedicating the second and third segments of the show to the subject. And we we have another great guest for today's episode for Task Force 7 Radio. We're going to hear from Roy Zur. He's going to be with us later on the show. Roy is is a great guest to have on the show to speak about the encryption debate. He's a cyber intelligence expert. He's the founder and CEO of several cybersecurity companies, including Cybent. He's a retired major with the Israeli Security Forces. He has over a decade of experience in cyber and intelligence operations, and he has developed cyber education programs and technology solutions for companies, educational institutions, and government agencies around the world. So he's a really interesting guy. He's got degrees in business and in law. And yeah, he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer in Israel where he has served as a legal advisor in the Israeli Supreme Court. His diversified international experience in technology, legal, and business makes his perspectives very well-rounded and very interesting. So that's why we're having him on the show. Roy is a practicing attorney. And he is the chairman of the Israeli Legislation Research Center called the OMEC Institute, which includes 150 researchers who work with the Israeli parliament. Roy is very well known in the cyber legal world and has spoken to the American Bar Association, the International Bar Association, the Department of Justice, and the FBI on many different cybersecurity issues, as well as dozens of conferences and other speaking events around the world. But before we get to Roy and his international cyber legal perspectives, I want to go over some news and set up the discussion for the second and third segments of the show. So CNY homepage is reporting that Admiral Mike McConnell, who served as Director of National Intelligence under both President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama, is saying that we are more in danger of a cyber attack than ever before. McConnell was quoted as saying that if we don't do something major, we're going to have some serious consequences. He's calling for drastic measures to be undertaken to protect our critical infrastructures. With our lives becoming more and more digitized, McConnell said threats to our cybersecurity are at an all-time high. During the video interview, McConnell wants people to know that everything you depend on, from the camera you're holding in your hands to your credit cards to your bank accounts, it's all digital. You took a shower this morning, you had hot water, you had lights. It's all digital, he says. It's all controlled through that means. And if it's digital, it's vulnerable, he proclaimed. So McConnell spoke about this at Utica College's Organization of Justice Studies as a way to be an advocate for change that he said is needed. And I quote, 
Right now, penetrations happen routinely. It takes about 200 days to discover you had malware inserted onto your system, and once you discover it, it takes about 90 days for it to be removed. He bemoaned that it should be discovered in seconds and should be removed in minutes, which I thought was wildly ambitious. But hey, that would be great. If we could do that, that'd be great. That sounds good. That would essentially end the viability of attacks on our networks. But the reality of things are, we are very far away from having that capability today. And this is interesting because I keep seeing companies being criticized for how long it takes for them to discover and then recover from an attack. But a lot of the time, those companies that are being harshly ridiculed are actually beating the average times quoted by McConnell and many others that we have previously mentioned on this show. And they are discovering that their own compromises, which a lot of companies don't do either, they usually get told by someone else that they've been having a problem, right? They don't discover their own compromises. But they usually get told, hey, look, they get the call. This is when your bad day starts. I think that some of the criticism is flat out unwarranted. I mean, I, I, I see people, you know, criticizing these companies all the time, and I think they should educate themselves on the challenges that cybersecurity professionals face before lashing out at others for actions or lack thereof that they perceive to be incompetent. At this point, McConnell said the U.S. could see what he calls a cyber Pearl Harbor. But he hopes a crisis doesn't need to happen before change is made through legislation and regulations. With leadership, if the president understands it, believes it, and pushes for it, we can have change, McConnell said. To my knowledge, McConnell didn't specify exactly what legislation he was talking about. But there is some specific legislation being discussed right now on the Hill around providing victims the legal right to retaliate against a hacker who has stolen their data. TheHill.com and many other major news media outlets are reporting that Representative Tom Graves, a Republican out of Georgia, and Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat out of Arizona, introduced a bill that would allow hacking victims to hack back when attacked. The Active Cyber Defense Certainty Act, it sounds very official to me, very official. It's an interesting name. It allows individuals and companies to hack hackers if the goal is to disrupt, monitor, or attribute the attack or destroy stolen files. So while it doesn't solve every problem, the legislation brings some light into the dark places where cyber criminals operate, Representative Graves said in a statement. The certainty the bill provides will empower individuals and companies to use new defenses against cyber criminals, he said. I also hope it spurs a new generation of tools and methods to level the lopsided cyber battlefield, if not give an edge to the cyber defenders. So the bill does not allow counter-attackers to destroy anything other than their own stolen files and requires that someone that's actually hacking back under the bill's provisions, notify the FBI before they actually do it. So I can only imagine what that conversation looks like. And someone at the FBI is really going to have their hands full with having those conversations with those callers all the time because I, I, I can just picture how that's going to play out in all these different scenarios. So the Hill.com states that traditionally the phrase active defense is used to describe measures that slow at hackers through deception or movement of files, not hacking the attacker. And that's very true. It's very true. So the article closed by saying that many people working in the cybersecurity field, worry that hacking back 
will create more problems. Well, that's an understatement of the year. I mean, I don't know anyone who supports this bill. No one. I can't find anyone. And I can't find one cybersecurity professional who thinks this is a good idea. I kind of feel that not only is this legislation not supported by cybersecurity professionals, but it seems to be to me that it's condemned by just about everyone I know. However, I really do appreciate Representative Gray's attempt at, at doing something here. I mean, at least he's trying to do something. Here is an elected official that is actually out there proactively trying to do something to empower the people of the United States to protect themselves. And I get it. I get it. I mean, the frustration is at an all-time high. This is just not a cut-and-dry situation. It's not a cut-and-dry issue. It's a very complex issue. It's very complicated. And the complexity is enormous. And we're going to have to continue exploring this on future episodes of the show because we could do a whole show just on this alone. So to summarize the legislation in terms that everyone can understand, the proposed legislation provides an exemption to 18 U.S.C. 1030, which is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. This is the federal hacking statute that makes it illegal to access someone else's computer without authorization. The Secret Service and FBI agents live with this statute every day as, as part of their daily jobs, and they're very familiar with this. And um, they work to enforce this statute all the time. So the bill would provide legislation that would permit individuals or companies to access computers that they are not authorized to and that don't belong to them as part of a self-defense exemption from prosecution. So it's the analogy I've used before. I mean, if someone punches you in the face, you have the right to use that force only reasonably necessary to defend yourself. And we'll get more into that later because this is, is not as easy as it sounds, and there's a lot that actually goes into this. So in order for someone to claim protection under the exemption, the alleged victim, now conceivably being investigated as the subject of an alleged crime, would have to demonstrate to the United States government that they were indeed a victim of a persistent unauthorized intrusion directed at their computer assets. So essentially, if, if someone steals your data, you're allowed to hack them back and delete your data from their systems, which, okay, it sounds okay, right? That sounds reasonable. Um, but in reality, it's actually much more complicated than that. <laughs> and if I wanted to get really, really dramatic here, I could lay out scenarios where this type of activity could actually escalate into an act of war. I won't go there right now, but it's possible that these things could happen. So now, just when you thought I was crazy, here comes a story out of Info uh, Security Magazine and many other major news outlets out there. But I want to throw some credit out to the InfoSec guys that the European Union member states have drafted a diplomatic document which states serious cyber attacks by foreign nation states could be construed as an act of war. <laughs> well, attribution is quite difficult. It's, it, it's very hard. And what, what does Putin always say, right? His explanation of particular events usually ends up like something like this. Well, there's no involvement of Russian intelligence officers, but this was probably done by, quote-unquote, patriotic Russians, yeah, that's great. That's pretty funny when I hear that. I mean, I, I, I get a kick out of this. So who decides what constitutes foreign nation-state attribution? So the EU document said to have been developed as a deterrent to provocations by the likes of the usual suspects in Russia, North Korea, and others, will state that member states may respond to online attacks with conventional weapons in the gravest circumstances. 
So the framework on a joint EU diplomatic response to malicious cyber activities would seem to raise the stakes significantly on state-sponsored attacks, especially those focused on critical infrastructure, which we talk about a lot here. So the security minister, Ben Wallace, claimed last week that the U.K. government is, quote, as sure as possible, unquote, that North Korea was behind the WannaCry ransomware attacks in May that crippled over a third of NHS England, forcing the cancellation of thousands of operations and appointments. The suspected state-sponsored group known as Dragonfly has also been active of late probing U.S. energy facilities. So the article noted that all being said, definitive attribution in cyberspace is very difficult, making the framework appear largely symbolic. Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, it's symbolic only until it's not. So as, we, as we've mentioned on previous shows, it brings the EU in line with NATO's move to establish a cyber defense, or in this case, a, a cyber offense, as a legitimate military domain. So meaning an online attack could theoretically trigger Article 5, the part of its treaty related to the collective defense of NATO nations. So Article 5 states that an attack on one member is an attack on all 29 allies. So you can see the importance of such a precedence. McAfee chief scientist Raj Samani claimed the move was unsurprising considering WannaCry and the likely state-backed attacks on French and German elections. He said, while it's important to define cyber attacks that are used for espionage or disruption as they would be when committed by physical actors, the greatest challenge that countries will have will be in identifying and providing the malicious actors that cause the cyber attack and that have direct links to government organizations something that these groups will be even more keen to conceal going forward, considering the document. So this is something that I've also duly noted. And, you know, not to sound like Captain Obvious here, but this is going to be a a huge challenge, right? It's going to be a huge challenge. So moving on, switching gears here for a second. Let's follow up on our previous reporting about U.S. government concerns over the Kaspersky antivirus. The BBC is reporting that Russian officials are saying the U.S. government decision to stop using software from Kaspersky Lab undermines fair competition. The Kremlin statement came in response to a 90-day deadline given to U.S. federal agencies to remove the Kaspersky software from their computers. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security said it was concerned about ties between company officials and the Russian intelligence services, but of course... Kaspersky Lab has repeatedly denied that it has any ties to the Kremlin whatsoever. So jumping on the bandwagon, U.S. retailer Best Buy has said it would no longer sell Kaspersky products in its stores. So it seems there is some additional fallout over the U.S. government decision, as Russia claims the decision also called into question the reliability of the United States as partners, adding that the ban would also undermine the competitive position of Russian firms around the world. And I think we're going to hear more from this. We're going to hear more about this, right? So it follows an earlier statement issued by the Russian embassy in New York, which said the move would prolong an ongoing diplomatic dispute between the two nations, saying these steps can only evoke regrets. So as for its part, Kaspersky has said that they are disappointed by the U.S. decision, but would attempt to prove that the allegations were unfounded. And they've since some unloaded some reports on social media uh, claiming to be the same. And they've also said that there's no credible evidence 
that has been presented publicly by anyone or any organization as the accusations are based on false allegations and inaccurate assumptions. So this is, is despite the fact that a few months ago, the news website Bloomberg reported it had seen emails between Chief Executive Eugene Kaspersky and senior Kaspersky staff outlining a secret cybersecurity project apparently requested by the FSB Russian Intelligence Service. We're going to take a commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk to our special guest, Roy Zur, about the encryption debate and get his international perspectives on the privacy versus security issue. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you realize that the root of your challenges lie within you? It's time to find out more about coaching and how it can help both you and your business. Coaching for Real with Ronald Graves will help you gain a deeper level of self-awareness to find the answers inside yourself. Our guests are business professionals just like you who agree to a coaching session on our radio program. Tune into Coaching for Real live every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. Private Solutions and former major with the Israeli Armed Forces, Roy Zur. Roy, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, so we've been talking about the encryption debate uh, over the last couple episodes of the show, and I wanted to uh, spend the next two segments uh, speaking about that and getting your opinions uh, from sort of an international perspective uh, on the encryption versus privacy issue. So just a level set for our audience. What are the common uses of encryption online and on our mobile devices uh, relative to guarding consumers' privacy? So let's start with the basics of, you know, using encryption. So the most common encryption that, that are now being talked, most people are talking about and the debate is about this kind of encryption is what we call 
end-to-end encryption. So in end-to-end encryption, data is encrypted and decrypted only at the endpoints. It means that if I send you a text, for example, the message is encrypted by me, by the sender, and decrypted by the recipient, by you. So in this kind of encryption, there is no third party that is able to decrypt the messages. So that's the debate. I mean, whether technology companies can create this kind of encryption uh, that allows them actually to avoid um, complying to law enforcement agencies and court orders uh, to provide the key, because actually they don't have the key. So uh, when I say no third party can get access to the data, it includes the telecom providers, the internet providers, and also the provider of the communication itself. So um, when these kind of programs or these kind of softwares, you can think about WhatsApp, you can think about Signal, you can think of other communication platforms. So this is one type of encryption. Another one is the link encryption. The link encryption is uh, when you use, for example, a website that, uh, that has HTTPS or SSL encryption, this is actually a link encryption. The link encryption actually encrypts the data in every point. So in every server the data is going through, it is encrypted. Now, it might sound like a stronger encrypt encryption, but the weakness of the link encryption is that the information needs to be decrypted at several points. So, for example, when I send you a, an email from Gmail, for example, then the email is encrypted through the server, but is decrypted in every point up until it gets to you. So there are several points where the data is actually not encrypted. That's why it's less, I mean, it's less strong or uh, you can think about it, or it's weaker than the end-to-end -end encryption. Now, we have other uses of encryption like VPNs, for example. So when, when somebody is using VPN, that's weaker than the other options because when you're using a VPN, the data is encrypted between you and the VPN server. Once it goes from the VPN server out to the web, the data is not encrypted anymore. That's why it's only between you, like uh, to the Wi-Fi router, to the VPN server, but then it's not encrypted in the internet. So that's the basics of, of using encryption. All right, so it seems to me that the public has grown very comfortable with the notion that whatever they type in that box can't be seen by anyone else other than the intended recipient and themselves. So how do you think consumers are going to react if they're told that the government can now access their encrypted communications moving forward? What's, the, what's going to be the reaction? Well, that's, that's actually a very interesting question. And I also listened to your previous segment uh, with Jeremiah Grossman. And uh, I think that I want to offer maybe a different framework to think about the question. Because, I mean, I think that the government issue and privacy issue is not the biggest problem. And I'll address it in a minute. I mean, it is a problem. But it's not the main problem, at least not in the U.S. I mean, I worked for, I mean, for government agency for over a decade, and I'm not the one who thinks that the government is the biggest concern, our biggest concern. So the main problem, and this is a different framework I want to offer, is not, we're not talking about, I don't think we're talking about privacy versus our security and safety in our life. I mean, on the one side, it's about protecting our privacy, and on the other side, is actually uh, giving law enforcement the tools to help protect our life. I actually think this is uh, protecting our life versus protecting our life. And I'll, and I'll explain. Because once you create a weaker 
uh, a weaker uh, encryption, for example, you need to be concerned not only from the U.S. government or from, you know, our own law enforcement agencies, but you need to think about all these foreign actors like China, Russia, terrorist organizations. So once you create weaker, uh, weaker encryptions, uh, I think the consumers should resist and it will be justified not because of the privacy issue, but first and foremost, because when you create some kind of responsible encryption, it's also responsible towards China, Russia, terrorist organizations, and cyber criminals. And we are talking about an industry that, I mean, the cyber, crim, the cyber crime industry, if you can call it an industry, that causes tremendous damages, like around the world, hundreds of billions of dollars of damage, risking our life, risking our financial structure. So if you ask me, I see the framework as, as, as a different framework. Consumers should, should resist because reasonable encrypt, responsible encryption will also provide tools to our enemies against us. So you've, you know, you've heard me reference the Deputy Attorney General of the United States' comments when he says that responsible encryption is achievable. And we spoke about that as well on the last segment. And I think we all agree that obviously it's, it's technically achievable. There's, there's technical solutions out there, but is it, is it really viable uh, that, it, that it's going to work and that it's going to be kept, you know, um, these keys are going to be kept private from anyone else who is not supposed to see them. So can you discuss the risk and implications from a global perspective? So if the United States government now has access to encrypted communications, especially uh, from countries like Russia and China, what are those risk and implications going to be? Right. So um, let me divide it to two segments, cyber crime and cyber warfare. So first, the incentive of uh, cyber criminals even before we are talking about Russia or China, groups of criminals that are after, you know, profit. Their, their incentive is always to try to um, get access to bigger databases, to more information, to more data, to more knowledge. Now, once you create this kind of responsible encryption, and I agree it's achievable from the technical perspective, but achievable means that you create some kind of solutions that the government can use but also once they leak, and everything leaks eventually, everything can be stolen eventually. Right. And if, right. I mean, the, the interest here, the motivation is so strong, even before countries, the financial motivation. Right now we are talking about an industry, I, I mean, cybercrime as an industry, of $500 billion annually. This is an industry that's going to grow to about $2.5 trillion by 2020. That's the, that's the estimation. So... And we are losing in this fight against crime. So um, and you can go to the dark web and see all these um, um, criminal marketplaces and criminal traffic. We are losing today. Now, if we'll create this kind of responsible encryption, we will actually expedite. We will make it easier for them to go after us. That's one. That's the cyber crime aspect. The second is the cyber warfare. We need to understand beneath the surface right now, countries are developing cyber weapons. The next war, I mean a big war, will be also not in you know, air, land, and sea, but also in the cyberspace. Countries are developing tools that they can use, for example, against critical infrastructure, including power, you know, health system, water system, nuclear uh, facilities, etc. They are developing it right now. So you can think, for example, the, 
uh, not petty attack that happened in July, that was first it was considered as a ransomware attack, ransomware attack, but we understood quite quite fast that this is actually a wiper attack. It started in Ukraine and spread around the world, and it was actually again allegedly, let's say allegedly, a Russian attack against Ukraine that spread to other countries. We can't actually limit the the you know the damage in one geographic location when we think about the internet. So. Countries are developing tools. We don't want to make it easier for them to attack us, to attack our citizens. And we have more to lose. When I say we, I mean the United States citizens. And again, it brings me to my previous uh, statement that I don't think it's privacy versus security. I think it's security versus security. So making encryption weaker uh, will help government agencies to collect intelligence on criminal and terrorists. But on the other side, it will also make life much easier to the same criminals or maybe more sophisticated criminals and terrorists um, uh, to find our information. You can think about examples like what happened a few years ago with the RSA, uh, um, where, you know, even if you try, and I read, um, and I read uh, you know, a, a lot of content about this, this case, when, whenever you try to, you know, to prevent leakage, eventually... It might happen, and if it's something, if you have this backdoor, let's say, this will be a you know catastrophe for uh, for us, and not just for our privacy, also for our safety and financial structure. So I get this question a lot, and I want to ask you and get you know get your viewpoint on this. So there are currently other ways to access the data that the government is looking to access without actually breaking the encryption. Yes, exactly. I mean, the basics is. If someone wants to read an encrypted message, there are, let's say, two uh, groups or two ways, uh, uh, groups of ways, let's say, to, to find or to read the information. One is actually really to correct the encryption, right? To uh, decipher, to, to correct the cipher, to understand how it works, and to correct it. And when the encryption uses a simple, you know, a simple cipher, it's easy. And when you have a more sophisticated mathematical algorithm, it becomes more complex. But that's one option. We're talking about this option about how to make the encryption maybe uh, um, uh, less complicated that will allow uh, the, the uh, law enforcement agencies to crack it. But the other option is not to crack the encryption, but just to find the key. And you can think, you can, you can think about a safe, a very strong safe that no one can crack it. And one option is to try to blow it up and try to, to hack inside it, but it's very difficult. But the other is just to find a person who has the key and get the key. And what I want to say about it is that when a government agency or a law enforcement agency or an intelligence agency has a specific target, let's say I'm your target. Let's say I'm not a terrorist, of course, but let's say I am the terrorist. I'm the one you target right now. So instead of creating a backdoor to the entire system, you can focus on me as a specific target and try to steal the key from me uh, by, uh, by um, bypassing the, what we call the endpoint security. And I will explain. So for example, if uh, a government agency wanna focus on me as a target, the government agency can use some kind of a spyware tools or sophisticated tools to make me find a backdoor only to my system without having uh, this, this uh, master key that allows them to hack everyone everywhere because this can be used, as I said, by other, uh, by, uh, by other criminals or terrorists. 
So what, what, I, what I suggest here is instead of creating a systematic weakness, this backdoor, let's deal with it case by case. Yes, it's, it is slower, it is more difficult, but, um, but focus on the endpoint security. So try to, to, instead of try to crack the encryption, use some kind of spyware or other hacking tools to target our specific target uh, instead of providing this access to everyone. Um, and in addition, there are other ways for law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies um, to, to collect and analyze data, including even metadata. Sometimes access to uh, maybe in court you need it, but to prevent the next crime, you can use metadata, including locations, communication between groups, and not you don't need just to read the content. So, again, it's not a full solution, but it's just another way to think about it. So, so I have a law enforcement background, as you know, and uh, and when I hear the Deputy Attorney General and the and the FBI Director talk about our legal proceedings and what's needed to um, win their cases, and, and the talk about there's no substitute for introducing the original communication in court, um, I can relate to this, right? So they say that yeah. there may be a wash in data, but it's not always the kind of evidence that our rule of law tradition establishes as sufficient to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So you, you have a legal background. Are there any other legal constructions to deal with the situation? Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, and definitely sometimes you have enough data to prevent the crime, but not enough, you know, to, to do the legal proceeding in, in court. And instead of, uh, and, and I want to offer again a, a different structure or a different framework to think about it. And I want to stay with the concept of endpoint security. And again, when I say endpoint security, I mean the specific individual. Let's, let's discuss about a specific individual instead of creating a systematic solution. So if we have a specific individual that we, um, that we need to get access to this individual uh, data, and this individual um, uh, disagreed to, to provide, um, let's say, the code to, uh, to the phone. So first, even today, if someone is refusing to unlock the phone, um, uh, we can actually, if, if this phone is protected by um, a fingerprint, we can actually force this person. And I, and I read several presidents, uh, presidents from uh, the Circuit Court of Virginia, and it was recently reinforced by the federal courts, I mean, last year, I think. And it means that, yes, you can force someone to unlock the device uh, with the fingerprints, I mean, to provide a fingerprint, and it won't be protected by the Fifth Amendment. And if you take this, this concept and you think about a broader concept, why actually are we allowing people to refuse uh, to provide um, access to their phone by, again, not providing their passcode? Why isn't it if, if the court, if there is a court order that says, give me access to your phone, why is this protected by the Constitution? I mean, it's an it's, it's a interpretation of the Constitution. But can't we just say that instead of creating a backdoor to everyone, maybe we'll change this interpretation? Maybe we'll say, well, if you don't provide access to your phone, even though there is a court order, maybe it's contempt. Maybe you will actually anyway will be charged and be in jail because you didn't provide access because probably you have something to hide. And I know maybe... Maybe uh, it sounds the advocate. It sounds like a very like a terrible idea. But as I said, I don't come from the privacy. I mean, I, I think about it as 
privacy versus security. I think that our privacy is important, but I'm one of the, the people who thinks that security is even more important. So what I'm saying is that instead of creating a security problem for everyone by providing, again, a master key or a backdoor to the system, let's deal with it case by case. And let's maybe um, change the interpretation or let's offer a different structure of understanding the Fifth Amendment in regards to providing access to phone and digital uh, digital um, assets. All right, we're, we're going to take some time for a commercial break right now, and then we'll be back after these short messages with more insights from our special guest, Roy Zor. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Starting and running a business can be hard. Moving forward and keeping the excitement alive can be difficult to do. I'm Joe Hosman. If you are experiencing the struggles of opening or sustaining a business or even knowing you need a change in your life, you want to tune in to my show, Go For It. My guests and I will show you the steps needed to build something positive in your week. Listen every Thursday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. I'm here with our guest, the CEO of Cybit Solutions and former major with the Israeli Armed Forces, Roy Zor. So, Roy, I want to continue our conversation about the encryption debate um, and keep the discussion going. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, if there's a master key, all right, and I know that you, you offered some other solutions, uh, if there was a master key that could provide access to all iPhones, for instance, across the globe, how long would it take for Russia or China or even Israel, for that matter, to get the key? I mean... How much would they pay to have access to every iPhone on the planet? Right. So let, let's think about, again, the incentives. Um, and let's think about China versus U.S., you know, the, you know, the United States. I mean, it's two superpowers uh, in the world. So, you know, arguably, China's main concerns are actually internal. So, and, I, and I'll explain how it relates to your question in a minute. But 
China's main concern are in, uh, uh, concerns are internal. So they, their main concerns are from sometimes maybe their own citizens. I mean, resistance to regime uh, and, you know, protecting the structure of, of the, in a way, the communist regime or the way structure there. So they actually are good or they are okay with preventing and they are doing it, the use of encryption in, in their country. So they block, for example, WhatsApp, and they block other apps with encryption, and they limit the access to VPNs, et cetera. Now, the United States actually has the opposite problem. I mean, United States' main concern, I mean, is not, I mean, sur I mean doing some kind of uh, surveillance on its own citizen, even if it does in, in some cases, but United States has many enemies around, or I don't know if you can call us enemies, but let's call it rivals right now, or challenges in the world. Um, in other superpowers like China, in other countries that were superpowers and still maybe consider themselves as such, like Russia, and they target um, they target the United States and they target the United States citizens. And I don't know how long it will take uh, for them, but I know that they will succeed eventually because I know that they will invest all their uh, power, all uh, and and and. Unlimited get access to this, they actually have a leverage, a huge leverage over the U.S. because the U.S. has much uh, more to lose than these countries. Uh, the way um, the way our data is stored, the way our I mean, the Chinese government is less concerned about. Um, some people will say I'm wrong, but that's my personal view, of course. The Chinese government, I would say, is less concerned about a specific citizen, a specific group of people than the survival or the regime itself. And in the United States, in any democracy, including Israel, um, the government concern is to protect the citizens or, I mean, to provide them protection. So I would say that if there will be some kind of master key or be hacked or it will be found by these government-led groups. Uh, I don't know if it will take a month, a year, or two years, but I can definitely say, I can't elaborate about it, that uh, even Israel, as a, it's not a superpower, but at least in the cyberspace, it's a very strong power, uh, is investing a lot of uh, effort, a lot of efforts in, in you know, finding uh, backdoors and solutions. And I can't tell much about it, but you can see that if Israel does that and uh, China is doing it and other countries are doing it, that eventually somebody will succeed and if there will be some kind of a master key. So having said that, in your estimation, would foreign governments even allow their intelligence officers to use iPhones that they know could be accessed by the United States government? I mean, what would be the domino effect in terms of you know, security and the points you made about it would yeah, work so, security? Yes, yeah, so um, the U.S., let's start with this. The U.S., the United States, is not living in a vacuum. I mean, it's not, there are other players in the market. Chinese technologies, Korean technologies, Japanese technologies, other solutions. So the dominant effect, the dominant effect that I think is that um, we, once, once we do this, uh, we actually will enable uh, stronger surveillance measures against U.S. citizens and U.S. technology users and weaker surveillance measures against others, and it will make other, not just government agencies, but others in the world, including individuals. Let's say I'm an individual um, who's, uh, let's say, individual in the Middle East, 
in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in, 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 in or in some kind of or or Syria, for example. I'm a terrorist. I'm part of a terrorist group. Um, now, state has access to specific technology. Well, I will try to use other technologies. Now, maybe today I'm using the U.S. technology because I think they are safe, but the solution that this debate might create actually the uh, the opposite, um, uh, if I can say that. I mean, because raise awareness of these government groups, of these terrorists, that, well, maybe the U.S. technologies, maybe U.S. companies are – uh, are uh, are not that safe, and we should move and use others, other technologies. And in this case, we will actually lose access, even access that we might have today. Instead of gaining more access, we might have more access to our own citizens, but we will have less access to the to the real threats outside, to the terrorist organizations, to the government-led groups. So I think I can I definitely think that we will have uh, some kind of a domino effect or a backlash effect in this case. So there's, there's a bunch of companies right now that depend on the encryption in their business model to provide privacy that consumers are really uh, wanting in their communications and in their devices. So companies like Apple and Google, um, everyone's familiar with, but there's also companies like Telegram and Signal and WhatsApp and Wicker that encryption's at the core of their business model. So how hard do you think these companies are going to lobby against a legislative solution that forces them to possess a key that would have they would have to turn over to the government when they're armed with a judicial order granting them access to the device or the platform that they are seeking data from. Well, in my estimation, they will definitely they will definitely put as much effort as they can to to prevent it. But I, I I'm not sure it's only from the uh, perspective. Not sure if just it's only because they want to make more money. I mean, I read the uh, deputy attorney general uh, you know statement about. Um, the law enforcement side that is about protecting the people and the company, the tech companies that only want to gain more money. And of course, I'm not, I'm not fooling myself. I mean, the tech companies are after money because they are for-profit companies. But, um, and they are, they are living in a, a competitive market where if they will be forced to provide weaker uh, solutions than other companies, as I said, we are not in a vacuum. Other companies around the world might offer uh, you know, might offer other solutions, maybe safer solutions. So there is, uh, um, there is some kind of a financial aspect or a big financial aspect that will uh, incentivize these companies uh, to, pr- to try and prevent or to lobby against this solution. But I also think they understand, as big tech companies and tech experts, they understand that it's not just, again, privacy versus security or money versus security. It's security versus security. They have the responsibility also to protect us, the people, against these cyber crimes, cyber attacks, uh, government groups, terrorist groups. It's not just – It's not. I don't see it as these tech companies against our own government. And that's why – and I – I have all the respect in the world to the Deputy General, uh, Deputy Attorney General, and to the Department of Justice. Um, uh, but I think that this framework, this structure, is is not 100% accurate. It's not the companies are 
lobbying against because they only want, you know, only after the money. I think, and I have many friends in the industry uh, from all these big companies, I know that they see their responsibility. They, they acknowledge their responsibility in protecting us, protecting our assets. And yes, it's also, it also has the financial aspect. Yes, they will probably lose in the competition to other companies, maybe outside the United States, if they will provide weaker, uh, weaker um, protection. And once they lose, we will all lose because then, as I said before, uh, we might have access only to our own people and not to the real threat that are surrounding us in other countries and in terrorist groups. So if these big tech companies are forced to create a weaker encryption model and change their business models to conform with new legislation, for instance, will the general public and, and even the criminals themselves start using other types of communication? Will we see a shift? Yeah. What do you predict will happen? Well, well, yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, I, 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 can know, I can't tell for sure. But what I think is that the average person, let's call it the reasonable person, will not change the way uh, – they will not change the way they communicate. The, the average people, the average person, because um, I, I think about you know the average person in the streets using WhatsApp or using another uh, um, solution. I think most of them are. I mean, they might be not sure they will change the way they communicate and try to look for other apps and other solutions. Um, maybe some. I mean, probably some of them will, but I'm not sure we'll see. A, you know, all the. I mean, the public will move from one solution to another because the public knows that the government maybe has some kind of, uh, you know, key. Uh, I think, again, that's my estimation, but I think that uh, we are not, we, we don't need to be worried about the average person. I mean, we are worried about criminals and terrorists and government-led groups. So one, while maybe the average person will keep using the same technology that will allow government access, Maybe actually the people, these terrorists, these criminals, they will find other solutions. And, you know, this is something that we see uh, criminals, and because I worked for about 10 years in, in the Israeli cyber unit, I saw it with, with terrorist groups and with, you know, government-led groups. They, will, they are always new communication systems, new solutions. We won't be able to prevent all the encryption in the world. So if we will focus on the big companies like uh, WhatsApp or Signal or others, yes, most of the public will be vulnerable to uh, maybe to hacking, but the real criminals and the real terrorists, they will probably find another way to communicate. So what do you think the future of encryption is here? I mean, is it going to just keep getting stronger and stronger until it's totally unbreakable? What do you see happening? So uh, I, I definitely see that uh, tech companies – it as their uh, and, and encryption, the companies that develop encryption are uh, trying to make stronger and stronger encryption. And th the, the thing is, and I'm not I'm not the expert on quantum computing and um, and quantum quantum encryption. But if we think about the future, well, quantum computing that we will probably see in the next uh, decade will change the way uh, we think about encryption, and we have not the focus of this interview, um, and, and I'm not the expert on quantum, but uh, the future of encryption is, is, is going there. And quantum computing will change the way uh, we are doing encryption today because quantum computing will actually uh, won't make the, uh, the encryption stronger, but will allow maybe to decrypt most of the encryption we have today. Uh, but you also have another channel of quantum encryption. 
So we see these are uh, uh, two, uh, you know, two channels that are evolving, um, um, you know, simultaneously. Uh, what I think about it, by the way, is that um, this is the tech and the security company's responsibility to keep making the encryption stronger, and it's the law enforcement uh, responsibility and intelligence agencies' responsibility to keep finding creative solutions uh, to this, let's call it, problem. Uh, both sides, uh, they are, we are on the same side, but let's call it both sides need to do their best to develop uh, encryption as strong as possible and to develop solutions that will allow to bypass it uh, in the most creative and, and the easiest way possible. I know it might, might sound like, you know, like not, not a good answer, but that's the way, that's my view about it. So we only have about a minute left. I, I wanted to uh, see if, what exactly happened with the San Bernardino shooter's phone that allowed the FBI to get in. They didn't need the, you know, the, the assistance from the technology company. They they actually got in the phone. Do you know anything about that? Right. So uh, um, I can't tell for sure. There are some some information about again as an Israeli about using an Israeli company called Cellbrite of uh, cracking the phone. I can't tell for sure if they did use this company, but I can tell that they used actually hackers or hacking services uh, to, uh, uh, to find a, a way in, even without Apple's assistance. And maybe, and this is maybe a summary for the entire conversation, because I think that's not a bad thing. I think that the security companies need to create, again, strong security, and the law enforcement agencies need to find a way to bypass it. And yes, they need to cooperate in whatever they can, but cooperation doesn't mean that providing a backdoor to all the systems uh, is, is the solution. So about San Bernardino, uh, yes, they, they did use uh, hacking services, maybe of the Israeli company Cellbrite, maybe for another company I can't address the specific company. Um, and this is something that, Law enforcement agencies are doing, including my own company, uh, Cybent. We are working with law enforcement agencies uh, to help them solve these kind of cases. All right, Roy. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate the insight you were able to give us on this issue. I mean, this was a great conversation. Um, I'd love to have you back on the show again. Hopefully, you'll come Thank back. Thank you. And I see appreciate us. it. Thank you. All right, everyone. We're definitely out of time. I'm, uh, I'm afraid we've got to go. That does it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel.